0: You know, there's an old truism in journalism. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. Not that you're <laughs> doubting mom, but she might've gotten the story wrong.
1: Yeah, no, trust me. I, Whenever my mom tells me she loves me, I'm like, it's the first thing. I I'm would, like, I would, really mom? Uh, like this time, are you sure?
0: Nobody loves me but my mother, and she could be jiving too, <laughs> um, as the old blues song goes.
1: Hi, buddy, and welcome to the Human Element Kara's podcast on modern marketing. I am wonderfully excited to have Donna Halper, a Boston-based historian, radio consultant, and an associate professor of communications. You have many hats, Donna. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: You know, you got to be versatile in the world today, and you <laughs> know that better than anyone. <laughs>
1: Isn't that the truth? So, I'm so excited to have you here because y- your background is so diverse and interesting. I think we're going to try to tell a story in three acts today. The first is we're going to talk a little bit about your background in radio and sort of how you've seen the medium change and how it's kind of expanded into this whole new thing of digital audio. Then, I want to talk a little bit about an area that you focus on around kind of media ethics because it's such a huge part of what's going on in society at the moment. And then the third thing we'll keep as a surprise. Todd is like, oh my goodness. That sounds
0: serious.
1: (laughs) So let's start from the beginning. How did you get started in radio?
0: Well, I knew I wanted to be in radio from the time I was a kid. I was a very lonely child and there's no punchline to this. This is like, you know, I was a lonely child 50,000 years ago. And no, I, I was the only Jew in my neighborhood I was the only girl who wanted to be something that wasn't stereotypically female. I don't know where I got it from, but I was always different from the other girls. I wanted a career. Now, for those that are listening and are going, wanted a career. Duh. Yeah, but this was the 50s and in the 50s. Girls could be teachers nurses or secretaries and they were expected to get married young and have kids Nothing wrong with any of that. It just wasn't for me Sure, I did want to do the marriage thing but many years later. Thank you very much And I fell in love with radio Because like I said, I was a lonely kid and I didn't have a lot of friends And the djs became my friends they really seemed like they were talking to me. And I don't mean that in a, you know, I'm hallucinating sort of way. I mean, personality radio was a big thing back then. And if you're in marketing, you know the importance of personality. If you have some testimonial and the person sounds like they're just going through the motions and reading off of a script, it just isn't going to persuade anyone. And the DJs back then, they sounded like they really loved their work, they enjoyed talking to young people, and they got a kick out of playing the hits. Okay, maybe it was an act, but it sure sounded real to me. And I said to myself, my God, what a great occupation. You can make people happy, you can change their mood, you can reach out to them. I wanna do that, Yeah. Then I didn't know that that wasn't on the approved list of jobs for girls. (laughs) And therein embarked upon a long battle that culminated in college in my senior year before I finally was able to persuade people that the Republic would not fall if there were a female DJ on the air. And I became the first woman in the history of Northeastern University to be on the radio and the republic did not fall. It's still here. Well, still there. Yep, it's uh, shaky sometimes, but it wasn't my fault. <laughs> so, what was that like?
1: Do you remember sort of the first time you, you know, hit the switch and kind of, you know, went live? Is it something you can still recall today?
0: Oh, of course. I did a folk music program called Full Circle. Because folk music at that time was sort of in a period of transition as well. And Boston was a huge market for folk music. I mean, we saw all the up and coming artists, you know, the Joan Baez's and the Bob Dylan's and the Tom rushes not to be confused with the rock band Rush. There was a very famous folk singer locally called mm-hmm. Tom Rush and people adored him. And so I played a lot of that. And I played some what today would be called soft rock, kind of like folky rock. But anyway, yeah, I remember that there were some guys from the station who were not real excited about having a woman on the air. And they stood outside my studio waiting for me to make a mistake so that they could then say, See, see what happens when you have a woman on the air. Mm. And I can assure you that I did not make a mistake because (laughs) for four years I had been working up to this moment. And yeah, yeah, I was nervous. Yeah, I was worried, but I was committed. I was going to get it done. And at a certain point, you just go for it. You just put it out there and you go for it. So then what came next? What came next was lots of nothing because unfortunately, while I spent a year and a half doing college radio The world still hadn't changed. There still were very, very few openings for women. I applied everywhere. And what I finally was able to do was get a couple of jobs as a writer. I wrote for the ABC Contemporary Network, which was one of four radio networks ABC had back then because radio was a dominant medium even then late 60s, early 70s, and I wrote a history of rock and roll called Retro Rock, and I still remember in 1971, they sent me out to do some interviews for that show, and the first person they sent me to interview was Neil Diamond, and Neil Diamond was up and coming, but he was still pretty big then. He had had a number of hits, like Cherry Cherry and Solitary Man and Sweet Caroline. And there I was, a working class kid from Dorchester, Massachusetts, you know, interviewing Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that got me nervous because I was out of my comfort zone. I mean, in radio, it's like, you can't see me. You can't see me on this podcast either. Right. But there I was, standing in front of Neil Diamond. And I was like, I got it done, but he was wonderful. To this day, I still feel like I owe him because he sensed that I was nervous and he really got it. And he sat down and gave me such a wonderful interview. I was just really, really touched by how kind he was and how cooperative. And I brought back the interview to my bosses and they were happy with it. And there you go. But yeah, I didn't get on the air until like, three years later, and mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was a long, strange trip. I was beginning to despair that I would ever get on the air. So when
1: you look back on it now, are there kind of one or two moments that were really most significant in your career as it relates to the radio?
0: Sure, discovering Rush, the rock band, not the folk singer from Boston. People always ask me, well, what day did you discover Rush? At the time, I didn't realize I was going to be making history. I mean, I was a music director. I'd always been a music director. I was a music director in college. I loved music directing. But I didn't know what day I got the record because I didn't know whether it would be significant or not. I got tons of records. I was a music director. It's what I did, you know? And as a result, I get this record in the mail. It's in a manila envelope. It's not in a record label envelope, like official record label envelope. And I'm like, hmm, what's this? And it turned out it was from a friend of mine named Bob Roper up in Canada. And I'm still in touch with Roper. It's been 45 years. We still keep in touch. He was working for a and Records up in Canada. And he sent me this record in a manila envelope with a note. We're not going to sign these guys. They're a local Canadian band. We just don't think they're ready for prime time. But I hear something, and I know that we've worked together on other stuff. Listen, see what you think. And I remember dropping the needle on Working Man, because back then it was vinyl records. And I knew the moment I heard it. Now, what I didn't know was that we'd end up being friends for like four decades, Come on, I'm a music director. What I do is listen to new music, get it played on the radio, obla di, obla da. That's my job. And in most cases, I never hear from the bands, nor do I expect to. In this case, the band became so popular in Cleveland that I I had to get in touch with their management, who were totally stunned. It was like, we can't get arrested in Toronto where we're (laughs) from. (laughs) And suddenly we're like a big hit in Cleveland?
1: In Cleveland,
0: you know, and they came here. We ended up becoming friends. I became friends with the management, their families, et cetera, et cetera. But if you had asked me back then, which was probably in April of 1974, if you had asked me like, hey, are you going to have a decades-long friendship with this band? Are you going to be with them at the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Are you going to be with them at the Rock and Roll Hall? of I would have said, yeah, Right. And yet, that is what happened.
1: That's what happened. Yeah. That's an amazing story.
0: What made you play it? Well, first of all, like I said, I was friends with Bob Roper. And I become friends with a lot of record promoters. And anytime they'd hear something that they thought would be appropriate for one of my radio stations, wherever I was, they would just send it along because we were friends. There's something to be said for friendship. Um And there's something to be said for ethics. And I know that back then I wasn't teaching ethics or anything like that, but there are times when doing the right thing takes precedence. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I started playing Rush, I called other radio stations and told them about this band. Now I didn't get dime one for doing that, okay? It just seemed like, oh my God, here's this unknown band. Their lyrics really spoke to me in terms of working, man. Well, I get up at seven. Yeah, I go to work at nine. Got no time for a living. Yes, I'm working all the time. Cleveland was a factory town back then. Mm. The people were, in fact, working all the time. Sure. I just knew. See, I'm a lyrics person. I just knew that lyric would speak to them. And this was before Neil Peart joined the band. And yes, you do pronounce it Peart. I've heard Pert, but no, he always said (laughs) Pert. That having been said, this was even before Neil joined the band, and I heard flashes of brilliance. And like I said, the ethical thing to do was not to just keep it to myself. So yeah, I wasn't working for their record label. A, they didn't have one yet, and B, refer back to A. But it still seemed like the right thing to do to help promote them. And so I did. And even after they got a record label, I would still call people and say, hey, you got, you should play these guys. These guys are good. So when you think about
1: radio and how it's evolved today and the way it connects into this explosion of audio over the past five or seven years, what are the things that were true about radio when you got started that are still true of sort of audio in its more digital form now?
0: One thing that's true and again, you know this from being in marketing. You've got to adapt. You've got to change with the times. I would love to tell you that there were some good old days, some mythical good old days, and we all just lived there. But no, we don't. Yes, it was wonderful to have a dominant mass medium like radio was back then, when I could put an album on the air like Rush, and watch it explode across numerous other radio stations and watch the band become popular. And that happened with a number of bands, and not just me, music directors all True. over the country were doing stuff like that. Bob Seeger got discovered because Rosalie Trombley at CKLW in Detroit, Windsor. Band just blossomed, Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band, because of what Rosalie Trombley did can't do that today there is no one dominant medium i know everybody's oh the internet yeah that's not dominant either there are segments of the population that use it all the time there are segments of population that get their you know get their music from spotify or pandora but unless you just happen to randomly come across some new band there's still a need to have people recommend music to you and radio still is in the mix radio is still a niche that people use to find out about new music the difference yeah. it's not the only niche
1: just on that point for one second you know i think i think there's something interesting in that when you think about you know we live in this age of discovery where everything is easy quote unquote to find or easier than it been able to be found than ever before, through search, through these aggregations of content. And when you think about Spotify or Pandora, you know essentially what they market is this unlimited sense of musical discovery, both through your own natural search but also through the algorithmic way in which they present music to you based on what you've listened to before. And yet, there seems to me to be lost in that, a bit of the, the magic of it. Am, am I just being sentimental?
0: You're absolutely right. I'll say two words to you. Bucky Pizzarelli.
1: Well, those weren't going to come to me, but I can't wait to figure out why you're telling me that. Come on, Donna. Lay it
0: on me. Okay. Bucky Pizzarelli was, of course, a jazz guitarist. And I had been exposed to big band when I was a kid because that's what my parents liked. But I didn't know a lot of the jazz musicians. And somebody recommended to me Barney Kessel, and Bucky Pizzarelli. And I'm like, okay, fine. So I went and got their records. And I was like, God, these guys are good. And Jean-Luc Ponty, and a whole host of other folks that if someone hadn't recommended them to me personally, I might not have tried them. There's a certain amount of, yeah, sure, you let your computer discover it for you based on what you heard before. That's all lovely. But what about thinking outside the box? What about somebody just going, hey, I know you're not fond of country, but this guy Garth Brooks, you know, you ought to check him out. And all across various platforms, there is so much stuff that it can become overwhelming. And I still say there's something to be said for that personal touch that radio used to provide exclusively, but now perhaps is being offered by word of mouth or offered by somebody just saying, hey, I listened to X and you should try it too. And I still think that's important, that person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You began teaching college-level courses around broadcasting, media criticism, media history. What sort of led you into that? What was sort of your motivation to get involved with that?
0: Desperation. There's this thing (laughs) called the rent. And the rent is too damn high. (laughs) No, all joking aside, I was watching my industry change with deregulation in the 1980s and then with the Telecommunications Act of 1996. By that time, I had been a radio consultant for almost 30 years, okay? And mostly working in small and medium markets, doing market research, training people, developing formats, et cetera, et cetera, and all of the small and medium markets are getting like gobbled up by the big corporate stations and suddenly along with 20,000 of my closest friends i had no job because i had no clients
1: yeah
0: and when that happens to you you got two choices you can sit around and be bitter or you can reinvent yourself i sat around being bitter for a couple of days because I'm <laughs> like, come on, this was 30 years of my life. Sure. And I was good at it. Yeah. And I enjoyed it. I got to consult everywhere. And then it was all gone and it had nothing to do with me. I did nothing wrong. Sometimes you can look at it and go off. Oh, I just hadn't mouthed off to the boss. Yeah. You know? But in this case, it's like, I did nothing wrong. I was, you know, I was a victim of circumstance. You right. know? And so I sat around just, Really feeling sorry for myself. And then I looked at the rent and said, well, (laughs) what's the next thing here? And I had always done a little part-time teaching, okay? I had always taught a course here, a course there, usually like in universities that wanted someone who was in the industry and could teach a course. And I said to myself, this isn't bad. I could do this, but I didn't have a PhD. And so at the age of 55, I went back to school. I'd been out of school for 30 years. But, you know, you do what you got to do. I'm a survivor, all right? Mm. And I'm the master of reinvention. So I went back to school at 55. And I got my PhD when I was 64. and became a college professor.
1: That's amazing. So, you know, you mentioned in there the consolidation, obviously, of radio and sort of the state that radio is in today, where it's literally dominated by these massive corporate entities.
0: Yeah, six giant corporations own something like 90 percent of all the media outlets, which I think is sad.
1: Nothing wrong
0: with making money, nothing wrong with being in a corporation. But that diversity of voices, that live and local touch has been lost in so many cities. And that breaks my heart.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really tragic consequence but another is also the way in which those corporate organizations have a disproportionate control over what people hear and this isn't a radio story but you know if you think about Sinclair as an example you know massive organization with a particular frankly political bent what's your perspective on on how the level of control that some of these large entities have over the direction of our discourse is is impacting our society right now.
0: In talk radio, 95 percent, and this is well documented, 95 percent of talk radio is right-wing conservative. There are parts of the country where there are no other options, no other voices. That's terrible for democracy. And by the way, I'd be saying the same thing if they were 95 percent liberal. The truth is we need a diversity of ideas. We need a diversity of voices to prevent siloing, to prevent confirmation bias. Yeah. If all you can get are sources that agree with you, if all you can get are sources that apprentice you into one way of thinking, how is that good for our democracy? So there are city after city where all the talk radio is the same. There's city after city where the vast majority of the TV stations lean one way, the news, the programming. Unfortunately, we are getting fewer and fewer and fewer ideas.
1: So when you talk to your students about this topic, what's their perspective?
0: In many cases, my students represent pretty much the rest of the student universe. Their parents may have taught them one thing and sure. then they come to school and they kind of get exposed to other stuff.
1: Are they concerned about the state of the dialogue? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I think that a lot of them just feel overwhelmed. Yeah. They feel depressed. They feel discouraged. They don't know what to believe. They don't know who to believe. In some cases, they just tune it out entirely. You know, we're
1: 20 days out from... Arguably the most polarizing election in 150 years. When you think about the recent dialogue you've had with your students, is there a conversation or an individual or a comment that one of your students has shared with you about that election that has stuck with you or hit you in particular?
0: To be honest with you, most of what I get from my students is just, we don't know who to believe, we don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. We get told so much stuff. There's so much stuff being thrown at us. We're trying to do the right thing. We don't always know what the right thing is.
1: Do they have a sense of
0: how to handle
1: disinformation?
0: Uh, They do if they take my classes, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: what do you tell them?
0: Fact check, fact check, fact check.
1: What kind of conversations have you had, and this will be my last student question, but I'm I'm really interested, with your students in and around topics with the big social media platforms. So, for example, let's just choose Facebook for a second. Several weeks ago, you know, they finally placed a ban on Boogaloo groups. Hey,
0: they just banned Holocaust denial. A day. That was
1: yesterday, so- yeah. What's that conversation been like with your students and the expectation that they might have of those platforms? Do they have any? expectation that they should be more active in this area?
0: Most of my students kind of live on Instagram and TikTok.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the answer is most of your students don't use Facebook.
0: Pretty much. (laughs) So on the other hand, a lot of their parents do still get their news from Facebook.
1: That's interesting. So the lightning round is going to feel familiar to you with the career in radio. These are quick questions with quick answers. Are you ready? By the way, you're not going to win anything. I'm sorry. We our promotional. Man, yeah, I very... was promised a
0: t-shirt. Yeah, I was I... promised a t-shirt.
1: <laughs> all right, I'll talk to Chelsea. I'm not She'll play get anymore. you. I'm going home.
0: Ah, we finally <laughs> Wait, had rebellion. I am home. Hello, <laughs> we're home all the time. We're
1: all home. Uh, Jason, we finally had rebellion over no t-shirts. We gotta, we gotta change. Who's your biggest role model?
0: Arnie Ginsburg. And my mother. Why? Arnie Ginsberg, because he was a rock and roll DJ who had a high squeaky voice and didn't let it stop him. And he kept his name at a time when everybody had to be John Jones or Jim Smith. Arnie Ginsberg was like, yeah, I'm Arnie Ginsberg. What about it?
1: Favorite city in the world?
0: Boston. My hometown.
1: All right. So let's get into this right now a little bit.
0: Sorry. Gotta be Boston.
1: We've successfully dodged this topic, Donna, till now. You are a huge baseball fan. Yep. I'm going to assume you're a big Red Sox
0: fan. Yes and no.
1: Now, what's the no part of yes?
0: Because of all the cities I worked in, okay. I started following a variety of teams. And because of Rush, Getty Lee, who is a huge baseball fan. He kind of turned me on to the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, For a long time, I followed the Jays because, I mean, I'm up in Toronto. I'm hanging with people. I'm not going to go to a bar because I don't drink. So where do you go? You go to a ball game. And that's That's exactly what we did. I mean, I just I love the game.
1: You just love baseball. I like this version of your description than just being a pure Red Sox fan as a Yankee fan. Oh, but
0: I hate the Yankees. I mean, who doesn't <laughs> hate the Yankees? Come on. All right,
1: perfect. There we go. As long as you hate the Yankees, then, Absolutely. then there we go. Who
0: doesn't? Last
1: one, thing people should know about you, but they don't.
0: I'm very shy. <laughs> you laugh. I'm very shy. One of the reasons I went into radio. Yep. Is because all the kids used to mock me and tell me I was ugly. I'm more comfortable on radio, I'm more comfortable on podcasts. If I'm at a party, I'm the person sitting in the corner hoping you don't notice I'm there. And yet when I'm performing, I'm not shy at all. When I'm performing, I can talk to 500 people or 5,000 people, never worry about it at all. But in a social context, yeah, that kind of stuff terrifies me because I still see that kid that was called ugly, the kid that was made fun of, the kid that was bullied. And so, yeah, I retreated into a medium where people couldn't see me. And I hope that by listening to me, I hope I made them feel better and I hope that I made them feel a little less lonely.
1: Well, you've certainly made us feel less lonely today, Donna. You've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, you kidding me? What a privilege.
1: Uh, It's been great to have you.
0: Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm deeply, deeply grateful because you guys have a reputation for ethics. We need more ethics today, even in professions like sales, like advertising. We need it now more than ever because if my students tell me anything, it's like we don't know what to believe. Give them something they can count on. Give them something they can trust. Give them something they
1: can believe in. Well, we will leave it there, Donna, because I can't think of any, any any other way to end it. You've been magnificent. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Subscribe, give us a comment, give us a like. We love that. And we'll be back out to you real soon. In the meantime, be well and be just. Thanks so much.